Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. This is Jonathan, but I'll be JT today. And our guest star is Jonathan. Say hello, Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Uh, okay, there we go. Yep. <laughs> Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast where when you have a 35-foot-tall giant with a laser rifle threatening you, you call him and raise him with a superdimensional fortress. This week, we are going to, re and this, folks, this is something I've been wanting to do for two years, and we finally have the guest that I've wanted to do this with. Tonight, we have with us, live on Podbean, the president and CEO and base chief cook and bottle washer of Battlefield Press out of Shreveport, Louisiana. He is also the co-author of Robotest, a Macross Saga role-playing game for the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. Mr. Jonathan M. Thompson. Thank you for being here, Jonathan. Yay. All righty. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm the resident Robotech geek and Bruce is the resident Savage Worlds person. He's run far more than I have. My experience in Savage Worlds, I made one character for one of our episodes years ago and I played one game of Savage Rifts with Sean Patrick Fannin. That's it. <laughs> so, so but, but you don't actually need don't need what? What was that, Jonathan? They got it covered. I said, if you're telling me you don't need. No, me, no, 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 no. We we want you here. Be <laughs> well, we need you for the insider track on the development and the uh, and all the stories and such for the Savage Worlds edition of Robotech. That's yeah. You know, that's primarily why you're here. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and of course, you know, an occasional whipping boy would tell you we don't like something about your game. I know. Well, we're not going to be, be jerks about no, it. No, of course on. not. Of course <laughs> okay, not. Just take away half I, my fun. I, I <laughs> oh, uh, you're. I, I'm sorry. I will send you a dozen dead kittens for you to to do something with. Wow. Just, yeah. just wow. Yeah. Just, Anyways, wow. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, there are. We we've all had a look at your uh, product. And so we do have some questions about it. Uh, but first, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the Savage Worlds edition came about? It's going to sound silly, but it, I just happened to have been in the right place at the right time. We, uh, I went to go have a meeting with Strange Machine Games, and by the end of it, they were offering it to me. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because there are technically now two new Robotech games out on the market. This one that Jonathan and his fellow authors, Jason Lang and Alan Weissman Reed did. And then the one w under the strange machine rules. So we have two Robotech role-playing games fro floating around right now. So two totally different me uh, mechanics behind it is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's cool. So, um, and, and when, when you got this, you know, got, got this gig, man, I mean, was it intimidating? Were you afraid that, that there was going to be a whole bunch of people showing up at your doorstep with pitchforks and, and, uh, uh, and, 
you know, uh, plasma uh, plasma cutters saying, "Hey, uh, <laughs> you, you, you did not do right by our product, our love, our because they they are some seriously seriously devoted fans to Robotech out there." I'm raising my hand here. I'm feeling a little called out here. Yeah, uh. that's actually a danger anytime you adapt a licensed property because how we perceive it is not going to be the same as the way you perceive it. Okay, what, what, agreed. Was yeah. it a was it a closed door development, or you know, uh, how how did you go about the the process of developing this product? We just kind of, as we do everything else, we just took it one day at a time. I announced it, and then um, I talked to some other people and uh, my co-authors, and they were you know ready to uh, to jump in, and and I needed the help because we were right in the middle of prepping for Gen Con and all kinds of other stuff, and then. Later on that same year, you know, we had a fire here, so it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds so terrible. That, that's well, yeah, yeah, that 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 puts back production on anything. Just yeah, when I found out about that, my jaw hit the floor about that, Jonathan. Just yeah, which has caused us to be still be behind on a bunch of things. So uh, yeah. yeah, we're not trying to uh, you know tell people that oh no we don't care it's you know we do care and we're working the best we can it's just difficult to uh to do you've had yeah you've had extremely mitigating circumstances yeah it... okay so um so you know, they whoever owns the robotech property gave it to you to develop it as savage worlds did did um uh did pinnacle have any oversight on this or was it just a no light? it's just it's i'm a licensed uh for savage world i've been for you know, 10 or so years. And, um, you know, and I think every product we do gets better. But, uh, so yeah, um, a strange machine got the rights for the RPG from, uh, Harmony Gold and they were able to, uh, you know, give us, you know, the rights for the seven. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh no, because I thought it was both of you somehow got the license and I'm like, okay, that's weird. Two different companies. But now I see on the second page, there's the strange machine games logo, next to Harmony Gold and your logo for Battlefield Press. I'm like, oh, okay, got it. I see what they did there. Yeah, okay. Though, you know, it's not impossible for two different companies to get the same property. I mean, I've seen it happen a couple of times over the last few years, but that was not the case this time. Yeah. Well, no, we, we have Strange Machine Games to thank for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So uh, what was the division of labor? What What is it that you were responsible for in this product a few things uh i did some of those andrade um i did a lot of cat herding um oh you and bruce have something in common then that's his resident job here resident cat herder Uh yeah yep um, you know and i went over it and i added what i needed to and i wasn't wasn't quite happy with and rewrote them i mean it's not um it really is a team effort uh and so there's not really one area i can say oh i did you know it was, we all did pretty much everything. So, like, you divided up all the characters amongst yourselves? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's, uh, people would do um, something, and then somebody else would take a look at it and either, you know, correct it or send it back, and, you know, and then it would go to somebody else. So we're kind of um, yeah, everybody reviewing each other's everybody work. Else's work. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay, so, well, So yeah. do, do, do you, is there any... Is there any particular part of the actual uh, property that you developed that you kind of felt was like your 
you know, your your baby, your 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 thing that you really concentrated on that you thought had to be done right, and you really cared about it. Um, I uh, played a lot with the mechanics, the game mechanics, like, like character building and such. But I mean, as I said, it really was a team effort. You no, know, nobody has any more or less. You know, having done it. Okay. Okay, because yeah, I'm seeing here with the you had you know skills that were revised to add new stuff from Robotech. You had new uses of skills, and of course, new hindrances and edges. I'm seeing here. That's yeah, right. like yeah, you changed Mister Fixit, and then you added new. As a, uh, Jonathan, I'm still learning the system here. Background, combat, leadership, professional, and social edges, and I don't remember seeing a lot of them in the Adventure Edition. So yeah, they're in there. Okay, so was the intent uh, for people to just basically pick up the uh, the characters from the actual uh, game, uh, game, you know, movies, whatever you want to call them, and play them uh, along the timeline, or uh, were they all supposed to create brand new characters and somehow bounce them off of these iconic uh, characters in the timeline? Could do it either way. I mean, we. Let it. We opened it up so that you can say, okay, look, I'm making my own squadron. You know, these are the people playing, blah blah blah. Or you can say, okay, look, we're doing Skull Squadron, and you know, we're playing these characters out of the out of the series. Oh no, because I'm seeing the characters here. You have pretty much all of the, as the term would go, dramatis personae. I mean, even ones that you know. Spoiler alert: Some of the characters do die in Macross. Um, yeah, you got like stats for Ben Dixon, Claudia Grant, and the Bridge Bunnies, Ben, you know, Roy Falker. Yeah, I mean, you've pretty much got everybody important in the Macross Saga Robotech all statted up and ready to go. So yeah, you you can actually play Max and Miria. You can play if you want. You got stats for Dolza, you know. So yeah, it, no, they're they're all here, folks. Yeah, Dolza was always one of my. Favorites. <laughs> Oh no! When he first meets all of the, the you know, what is it? Um, Lisa, Rick, uh, Max, and Ben. Just he's so confused by them. Just what are they doing? Why are they saying this? You know? Yeah. Okay. The Robotech geek is kicking in here. Now, as I said, I mean, I dig deep for Robotech stuff. I'm in my campaigns. I go to what is it? The Robotech historical files, which you can only find on the Internet Archive now, and. I started reading A Brief History of Earth. You know, it's by Dr. Lang and everything. And as I was reading it, I'm going, okay, after the canon geek and me settled down, I realized that, okay, how Earth was before the SDF-1 landed is different. And I know why, or at least I, I kind of see why. When Robotech was made, well, it came out in 85. So Carl Masek did this back in like 83, 84. We were still at the tail end of the Cold War. The canon I've always heard is that Oh, yeah, you know, the global civil war that was happening that was interrupted by the SDF-1 landing was because they were fighting over rights of the International Space Station, which they called the New Frontier. Not quite here with this canon. It's more, yeah, there were wars going on, but you had also environmental problems, overpopulation, pollution problems, climate problems. And so I, I sat there and I thought, I said, wait a minute, yeah, if you're trying to get younger people into the game, talking about the Cold War, they're going to be like, okay, that's something my parents and grandparents did, you know, that, that they lived through. I have no connection to this concept that, you know, it's a Cold War vestige kind of mentality in the world at the time. 
So I see that you brought in stuff that modern gamers could relate to climate change, economic issues. Right. Much, um, much like we uh, did when we came out with the G- D20 edition of Fringeworthy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, once I, I beat the cannon geek in me down with a rock and drowned it and said, okay, look at this for a more objective view and quit holding on to that, it made sense. It made great sense. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this works. Yeah, and it, it it's relatable to new gamers, I'm sure older gamers, oh, Robotech in this mechanic, they'll look at it and go, okay, I see why they tweak the canon a little to make it more modern day. Because Robotech is like 35 years old. It came out in 1985. So, so yeah, I see where that change in canon, it works, it pops. But it just took me a while to get past what I know, you know, for the past 35 years is canon. Another thing I did notice... And again, just uh, it came up the brief timeline of the macro Macross and reconstruction era. And it basically starts with 1840. The Robotech masters get full drives going and that's when they, you know, start exploring the universe. The histories I always read, it was like the 1100s. I mean, they've got a, a, an empire that spans almost a millennium. And again, I understood it's like, okay, they tweaked it down to try to keep it a little more modern sounding and to dates they can relate to. So yeah, once I got past those two facets, I was great. I'm like, okay, no, I like this. This is cool. I mean, they kept all the important parts in. You still get the feel and the vibe of Robotech and what has happened before. It's just you modernized it a little and you compress the timeline some to fit within like the last, let's see, 1840. 180 years instead of, you know, the millennium that the Robotech masters have, of, you know, before this particular version of Canon. So I like that with these, but as I said, just, the Canon geek was just like, Ugh! and then, you know, I calmed down, <laughs> but no, I do like what was done here. It's still got all the important bits in it and everything. So, you know, my hat off to you, sir, on that. Well, we had to through approvals that Harmony Gold so, you know, they let us print it as is. So obviously they have, they liked it too. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have both editions of the Palladium version and at uh, Yomacon or local anime convention years ago, I got to talk to Jason Marker, one of the guys that worked on the, the first couple books of that, of the second edition. And they basically told me, yeah, Harmony Gold canon is fluid. That's just whatever suits them at the time. I'm like, okay, then. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they found this and they're, yeah, this works. Okay, sure. It's cool. <laughs> Again, it covers all the major points about the Robotech Masters and the Zentradi and the Invid and Zorg fleeing to Earth. And they said, okay, they got all the major bits. It's good. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I like this. I, I'm not seeing anything. The only thing I saw that was changed was what state the Earth was in before the SDF-1 landed. So, as I said, once I got past that, I was like, oh, everything else is cool. Okay. So, I do like one thing. It talks about the various technologies that that robotechnology brought to this campaign. And I love how you guys put in canon, made it an in-canon reason, the hair color and the hairstyles. Well, the Zentradi did it as a form of self-expression. It was one of the few ones they had. So, it, you know, bleeded into Earth culture. And that's why we have, you know, Max with blue hair and, you know... Dana has green hair when she's born, and I'm like, oh, I see what they did there. <laughs> I like that. Work it into the story. <laughs> she tried. Yeah. <laughs> no, it worked. Yeah, I'm sitting there reading. I'm going, oh, I like that. Okay. Yeah, all the rest, I'm going, 
Okay, yeah, automation processes, full drives, gravity generators, okay, hairstyling. And then I read, I was like, okay, all right, they made it work, cool. Yeah, because they never really explained it. It's like why this, you know, this Veritech pilot is blue hair. You know, okay, let's see. Okay, the all the canon. The, the timeline is good. Other than, like, compressing all this, the history of the Robotech Masters, everything else on the timeline pops. It's like, okay, once it got to Earth, everything was fine, and then everything changed, and just all the dates pretty much... I mean, the hell, even the dates look almost exact. It goes up to uh, the end of the first Robotech War where Chiron takes out the SDF-1 and SDF-2. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I have a question about that. Uh, on page 15, it says, on July 30th, 2010, it says the SDF-1 was forced to leave Earth forever, but then we, uh, on page 17, it says SDF-2 was moved to Earth to transfer systems from SDF-1. So was that like in orbit? When you say left Earth forever, you mean it was still in the solar system, but it was not, you know, actually standing somewhere on Earth. I wasn't quite sure what was going on with that. I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that, Jonathan. Page 15 and page 17, March 10th, 2010, uh, I'm sorry, uh, July 30th, 2010, SDF forced to leave Earth forever. And then when you go to... Uh, Page 17, it says the on September 2013, three years later, it says FDF-2 moved to Earth to transfer systems from SDF-1. So I was just like, where did this actually take place, considering that SDF-1 was supposed to have left Earth forever? It looks like we have a typo. Or no, 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 wait, I think leaving Earth forever just, it could have been the SDF-1 was in orbit. Well, that's what I was asking. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'm, not, I, it's I, not I would, clear to yeah, me. I, yeah, I, I would say Jeff, just, yeah. But I, I, I was hoping our guest could actually answer that question. Actually, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, that, 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 that's fine, because I remember it's because the SDF-1 came back and, you know, the shields overloaded and wiped out basically Toronto. And that's when they said, okay, you're gone. Get out of here. You know, so it said, yeah, leave Earth and decoy them away, decoy the Zentradi away. So, yeah, it's, it's, orbit's fine. <laughs> Maybe orbiting the moon, you know, just, yeah, it's all good. Okay, uh, let's see. What else? And again, just, oh, you guys did not skimp in the art department. Okay, what was that, Jonathan? That was when they were told after the destruction of Toronto. Yeah. They were told they couldn't come back. Yeah, that was the episode where Ben Dixon died because he didn't get out of the explosion in time. Yeah, that that particular, I forget the name of the episode, but yeah. But no, uh, the one thing I was going to say, Jonathan, uh, you and your crew, you did not skimp on the art department. I am just blown away with the artwork in this thing. Just wow. From the renditions of the characters to the mecha and the ships and everything, and just my hat is off to you guys. Just Unbelievable. Well, we can't take total credit because um, some of this is actually artwork that was uh, commissioned by a strange machine that we got. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Let's see here. Wait a minute. Who is credited for Francisco Etchart? Yeah. Did the cover and the interior. Yeah. My, yeah. My hat's off to him. He's fantastic work. Oh, he is. And uh, um, the cover was uh, a room with. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. Tech Games had a big mech on the cover, and I wanted... Well, I mean, it also does add a human element to it. I mean, and Rick Hunter is probably the most recognizable person, or one of the most recognizable characters 
in the Macross saga, which to most Robotech people, people who know Robotech, Macross, the first part of it is the most, it's the first thing that comes to mind. And so you think, oh, Rick Hunter, Lynn Menmay, Lisa Hayes, Britai, you know, Exodor, you know, Roy Falker. So yeah, no, no, the, the cover was just, when I first got it and I just looked, I was like, wow. And you're, and yeah, you're right. 99% of all the Robotech game books I have, are it's all mecha on the cover. You might see a face or two, like as a background thing. Yeah, geez, just, yeah, doing this game and playing this game for 25 years now. And I just now noticed that, geez. Uh, it's a slow learning curve, okay? Don't judge me. Yeah. Um, judge, judge. Judge. Judging. I'm judging you. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. What else? Yeah. There was a lot of stuff in this thing, like the robots, that I had never, I had, I, you know, I've seen the series because um, a friend of mine had it. And, uh, and, I, and I say I've seen it fairly recently, like within the last five years. And uh, so I, I got to basically see the series as I'd never seen it before on television and such. Uh, so I didn't recall all these robotic vending machines and camera bots and, Various things like that. So I found them to be very interesting. Uh, I, you know, the um, the inclusion of um, robotics as kind of like NPCs in the game, I thought was something that sets Robotech apart from a lot of other properties that I've seen. You know, with the exception of perhaps Star Wars, which of course has droids for everything. Even Timmy Cab. So, is was there any uh, was there? Did you get all the robots in, or was there something that just couldn't quite you know get into the book? I really couldn't tell you. I mean, it's been two years since we released it. I worked on a thing or two since then. Okay, um, but I'm not, we did try to put as much as we could in it. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm I'm seeing the yeah, and folks, there are stats for the pop machines. If you remember, Lin Min May and her little cousin was there, and he was crying that he wanted to. They've got stats for the pop machines in here. Let's see. You got the camera bot. Let's see where is that. Yep, Canon J1 self-propelled photo developing machine. Yep, <laughs> it, it took a picture of Lin and uh, Rick and Min May there when he was in the park. Take your picture, sir, for a credit. Yeah, yeah that's all. Two miles an hour, four-hour battery. Oh no, you you guys tapped all you know, everything. Yeah, wow. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I I saw that you had a uh, you, you basically gave the players or the GMs the option of incorporating protoculture uh, into a lot of equipment or just very specific ones. And you actually have two different rules uh, about how equipment would operate. Mostly what it seems to me is that protoculture essentially eliminated some of the minuses that would normally be in the game. So, for example, and, and you listed as saying it, it basically creates bullet time for the, the, um, the, the players. So that whenever they go in, they start using something with protoculture, then anything that would normally have been a minus because you're trying to do multiple actions at the same time, instead you basically treat them as if they're completely separate actions because there's enough time to resolve each and every single one before going to the next. What would normally be something where you were trying to juggle multiple actions, you have, you're able to complete them all separately so there's no minuses. So that's essentially what I see from reading this is the big advantage of using protoculture. It, you know, do, you, do you agree, um, Trev? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, yeah, the whole point of protoculture is that it sort of adds, and how do I describe it to my players? when we Protoculture, when you have a protoculture reflex reactor, it adds sort of a biomechanical fluidity. The robot that you manipulate, the machine, moves as you do. Better than you do. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> the, these rules here work for me that you can get to do extra things and do things quicker because of the biofluidity of protoculture now powering whatever it is you add to it, your car, your mech, your plane, what have you. Okay. Uh, I'll have to give credit where it's due for that. That was the brainchild of Jason Lang. Okay. The, uh, and it, it's, it's just a perfect um, you know, system. You know, it, it does. It, you know, I'm very happy with it. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. Yeah, the one thing that I found a little bit hard to understand was in as far as the engines and things like that were concerned, was you talked about how these new technological engines and also protoculture were uh, able to, you know, make them much more efficient and things like that. But it didn't really explain where the mass was coming from that they were using to operate because essentially it seemed like they were like, they didn't have any fuel. They just basically just did whatever they needed to do and never worried about running out of fuel as long as you know you were using one of these, these things. And uh, I always never quite, quite understood how that you know, was, was this just, it didn't seem like it was, uh, uh, following the the laws of physics, if I if I may say that, uh, is was this just simply a case of uh, dramatic license, or is there something I don't understand? You know, was was this stuff generating mass somehow that I didn't understand? Uh, it's pretty much because you know okay. there was no real sense of that in the series, so we just kind of went with it. Okay. Yeah, I, I do see here on page 65 under Mecca, it says, Protoculture, encased in a battery-like protective housing, reacts with energy in a strange way. Not only do they superconduct electricity, they seemingly produce more than what is put into them. Physicists are still puzzling out how they do this. Current theory has to do with quantum entanglement and RJ brain theory. Yeah, and it seems to react with human brain waves. Yeah, it, it it's at this point, yeah, it's magic. Just, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, they chalk it up to an, it's an alien property of the flower of life and the seed of protoculture, yeah. But it also is true for just the regular engines, the regular impulse engines that didn't use protoculture. You know, they, they were just highly efficient, you know, alien technology. Yeah, yeah, just, it's yeah, it's alien tech. Yeah, they reverse engineered it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to see here what, there was something else I wanted to bring up right now. I'm probably going to, oh, tomorrow morning I'll remember it, I'm sure. Of uh, course. Of yeah, course. that's how it always works. Much, yeah. Oh, let's see here. Um, I do like, yeah, I do like the concept of on, on page one forty-five, dramatic ammunition. <laughs> By the way, that's my new Guns and Roses cover band. I'm just putting that out there. One forty-five. That's way toward the end. Yeah, yeah, and I, I noticed that it's because the GU eleven, the machine gun that that uh, the Val, the Veritex use. It's basically a big machine gun. And you don't see, uh, I don't remember seeing a belt come out of it. So you know this thing just has like, it's loaded. And it says here, a GU-11 is 200 rounds. Then you have energy weapons which draw upon the battery of the vehicle. And yeah, if it draws upon the vehicle's reactor, it's pretty much got unlimited ammo. Right. And you don't have to track every bullet. It's when you roll a one on a shooting or gunnery die, regardless of the wild die, that's when the gun gets jammed or you've 
run out of ammo or you burn out a diode and the reactor isn't working properly or yeah but other than that that's good you don't have to sit there and worry about well i only got like five shots left and there's ten zentradi you know which it keeps in the spirit of savage worlds from what i've seen you don't it, it it's a very rules light system you don't want to get too much into um the crunch because there are times it would it disrupts the flow of the game and so i see i like this rule for dramatic ammunition yeah <laughs> okay uh um i i do have one more question jonathan with the rules for mecca did you draw i mean did you guys come up with these rules on your own or did you pull anything from savage rifts uh, we did not pull anything from savage rifts oh okay Ooh, ooh. i'm kind of wondering that i'm i'm kind of wondering if like there were like um and i'm sure there are savage worlds forums I'm wondering if people come up and, you know, they're they're trying to, oh, how do we integrate the rules from Savage Ritz with, you know, this? I, I'm sure that might come up then. If you guys came up with your own rules and didn't look at the other work, yeah, I'm sure there are going to be some Savage World fans that are just like, wait a minute, how are we supposed to? Yeah, GMs, that's our job. Figure it out. Yeah. Make it work. <laughs> yep. Okay. Duct tape. Uh, yeah. Right. So uh, I noticed that uh, that things like you know Zentradi uh, ships and things like that they actually have a variety of, of of different parts to them so you can target specific areas um, and disable them. Uh, now, you know, speaking of savage, uh, not savage rifts, but rifts in general, the the. Uh, the, the series from before, they had this thing called Mega Damage, where if you didn't have a Mega Damage weapon, you couldn't actually do any damage to something that had Mega Damage as an attribute. So when you guys were playtesting these combats, I'm assuming you did a lot of that, you know, fight, uh, space uh, battles and things like that. Um, I, I, I noticed that you've got like, you know, toughness of 50 and things like that. Really high levels of toughness for these various pieces of equipment. But then you're also attacking with these enormously powerful weapons. So my question is, is that, um, did, you know, did you find, at any point, did you find that the, uh, the various ships and various parts of the ships were a little too frangible? A little bit too fragile, and and uh, and you needed to beef up uh, the toughness, or uh, you know, cut back a little bit on the damage potential of some of these weapons. Uh, no, um, because if you look, if you look at the series, whenever they would hit a Zandrati ship, something and would blow up. So, because their ships were not as repaired, were, well, um, well, it was kind it, of sitting it, as they went. Yeah, in canon, usually the Zandrati they just did shock and awe. They came in like just gangbusters. So they were lightly armored and they just came in in the shock and awe type of, we just come and swarm your planet. And the Zentradi knew they were dying for the glory of the Robotech Masters. So it's like, we're going to put them in lightly armored stuff and just swarm them. Yeah, I'm not talking about like the battle pods. Yeah, they would come in, you know, even in the series. Yeah, they would like, you know, shoot them in the leg or the arm or something like that. And as soon as they became in any way disabled, bang, the pod would open up. And a Zentradi warrior who was just as tough, tougher probably than the battle pod would jump out and start firing at you with a handheld weapon. Sure, I'm talking about the big ships, you know, um, 
you know how oh, the capital ships yeah, okay, yeah yeah how 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 easy is it you know really to take these things down you know assuming that you you know because i mean some of the valkyrie and stuff like that they have some pretty serious weaponry especially with the missile pods and stuff like that so i was just wondering how did uh, how did the capital ships behave when they were being assaulted like this anything jonathan I'm thinking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes we have to make sure you heard us because <laughs> uh, we're not seeing each other. What? I didn't hear you. No. Um, <laughs> that, uh, they behaved like we expected is from what I can remember uh, because there were a couple of times that a uh, Zandrati capital ship would be hit in the series and that you would see something explode. So be um, damaged. So. That's the advantage of the multiple locations on ships is that you could, you know, if you, once they became familiar with them, they could go after some of the areas that were less armored. But I just wondered, you know, is it, was, was it done that way so that these ships could take damage and then retreat rather than just basically standing there, taking it, taking it, taking it, and then suddenly it's gone. Okay. Cause you know, or it seemed like they suddenly lost, um, uh, uh, you know, heroism, and they just, you know, uh, and, and they had to take off. I mean, how uh, how long would a player uh, expect, let's say, uh, a capital ship to last under an onslaught of a, of a, of a, a couple or a squad of, um, of, of Robotech fighters before... It would either have to retreat or be destroyed. What was your There's experience? There's not really an answer to that. I mean, we did it. Always did it in several ways. I mean, um, I'm I have a background in military tactics and uh, war, so you know I, I play it that way. Uh, but not everybody. Does. All right. Well, how how would that background change how you approached a space battle versus somebody who was just like coming out of just regular role-playing games that might not have that? Uh, well, I, I run them based on actual tactics, you know, what they and I, but, uh, uh, wet navy. Okay, tactics. yeah, and then you just add that third dimension, uh, yeah. You get one ship, you know, taking a brunt of, um, say, three, then that one ship will avoid or it will have to uh, come back later. About how long did, would, would, a, would a GM expect a space battle to last if let's say they were equally matched, I couldn't tell you because um, in our playtest group here, uh, it went on for several days only because we didn't have a lot of time to do it. So I think we uh, the equivalent of like, I don't actually I can't remember. I just know that um, we've been playing and you know checking out the rules and uh, if I made any notes, I set them on. Um, I know it seems okay. All right. Uh, at the end of the day, it always comes down to what feels right dramatically for the GM. Well, yeah. What, what, it, what, what the GM says is like, um, okay, they've been hitting this spot for uh, a good bit of time now. It's time for it to blow up. Yeah. Well, also, I, I do know from canon, the Zentradi ships, remember, the Zentradi knew screw all about mechanics. They'd be flying around in space, and there'd be like half of one deck just gone. And they would just shut off that area where it wasn't exposed. You know, they extra bulkheads. And the only time that these ships ever got repaired was when they got to a Robotech factory. So they'd be there'd be times they'd be, you know, sometimes going into battle with half a deck missing. You know, if it was a 20-deck ship, 
half a deck to 18 was gone, yeah, they still went into battle, you know, so because the Zentradi had no real engineers. They were combatants and, you know, they piled the ship and then they had their Marines that flew out in the pods and the fighters. If they got hit repeatedly and they retreated, the only time they got repaired is when a Robotech factory, you know, folded into their, you know, they met up with a Robotech factory, then they went in for repairs and got it fixed. So, yeah, I, I, I would see where, and again, you know, these ships, the Zentradi ships are like, what? Well, let's see the length. Yeah, 13,000 feet. That's what, two and a half miles? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the, the command, the Nupetit Vergnitz. The, the battleship that, like, Britai was in. Yeah, that was about two and a half miles long. Yeah. And just, that, that could take a lot of punishment. <laughs> you know, let's see, it had, you know, because let's see, you guys, there is ship stats, I believe, space vessels you have rules for. Yeah. The immense vessels rule. Yeah. So that was all taken into account. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.